0: Hey, it's Alice. Just a quick reminder before we get started that the views you're going to hear on the show today belong to Jim, me, and our guests. They don't reflect the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay, here's the show.
1: And if you go to war, you go in with overwhelming military force.
2: We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me.
0: Welcome to Thank You for Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the Office of the Secretary of Defense.
2: And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service. Today on the show, what does it mean for the military to be under civilian control?
0: What is obedience, loyalty, and subordination?
2: And what is the role of trust in the civil-military relationship?
0: How does the military officer work with the politician? How should they work together?
2: We talked to some people who have thought about that and lived these questions today on Thank You for Your Service. Military subordination to the civilian-led government is a basic tenet of democracy. Put simply, it means the military does what elected leaders want, not vice versa.
0: But when you look more closely at civilian control, you realize pretty quickly it's complicated.
3: I don't think that we normally think of, especially command authority, as something that's subject to negotiation, right? We think of it as whoever's in charge has a certain kind of command authority, and it's just what it is. It's not subject to discussion. It's not subject to negotiation.
2: This is Pauline Shanks-Corin. She's a philosopher and a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. She writes about military ethics, and her latest book is called On Obedience. In it, she argues that genuine obedience is an unthinking. It's not a reflex. It's deliberate in the sense that there's a negotiation between the obeyer and the obeyed.
3: In that chapter, I talk about the French mutinies on the Western Front in 1917 and 1918. And there weren't just mutinies. There were all kinds of acts of disobedience and less than obedience. And in the book, I Lay out a taxonomy that it's not obedience and disobedience, you know, there's sort of a range of activities in between, and, and you saw a lot of those on the, on the Western Front culminating in the mutinies. But then what happened as a result of those mutinies is that command authority was effectively renegotiated.
0: That's not an idea we often think of when we think about the military. But as Dr. Corin shows, the person doing the obeying? They have to choose obedience. Their submission has to be willing. Think of civil disobedience, how it highlights the contractual nature of the relationship between citizen and
3: state. I think we see the same thing in the civilian realm with political authority. It's not that simple. The U.S. civil rights movement involved a fairly radical renegotiation at the time of what those boundaries
2: were. That's another cool thing about Pauline's book. It compares obedience in the military with obedience in civilian context, too.
3: And now at the War College, I teach mostly military officers, but we do have civilians. And I thought obedience was something that crossed those divides. It's not just something the military has to think about. It is something that civilians think about. But back to this idea of a negotiation. Because it takes at least two people for obedience to happen—
0: Pauline says obedience is communal. Obedience isn't something an individual can perform alone.
3: There are some virtues like obedience and loyalty and courage that I argue are communal virtues. In other words, they only make sense in the context of a broader society. I think in American life, we often think of virtues in an individual way. So I wanted to bring in that kind of you know, Aristotelian sensibility is also in David Hume. Morality had to be considered in a communal context. So obedience involves at least two parties, the person who's giving a command or an order and the person who receives the command. So as soon as you have two, then I think we're in that communal territory. And of course, as I argue in the book, it's not just those two people that are involved, that obedience usually involves some kind of community of practice that has standards around how obedience is handled, whether that's the military, the civilian context, or my household.
2: A community of practice can be a profession, and obedience to civilian authority is a fundamental aspect of the military profession in a democracy.
0: But then Dr. Corinne made an important distinction when I asked her about how we should think about the military's obedience in the United States. One of the things that I was thinking about was the conversation we've been having publicly recently about whether or not the United States military owes its loyalty to the president as commander in chief or its loyalty to the Constitution.
3: The difference between loyalty and obedience is obedience tends to be oriented to a particular act. I tell my kid to clean your room or take the dog out or whatever. So it's oriented around a specific instance. Loyalty is oriented usually around relationships or a longer term sense of shared projects, shared priorities, and shared commitments. And so the problem that I have with thinking of the military as owing loyalty, I think the military does owe loyalty to the commander in chief in the sense of owing that loyalty to that office, and then by extension, whoever happens to occupy that office. It's not actually about the person itself, it's more about the office, and the reason for that loyalty is part of a broader structure of loyalty that the military owes loyalty to, for lack of a better word, to the state and to the state apparatus. They act as agents, they take an oath to act as agents for the state so when people start talking in terms of loyalty as a personal relationship like i owe loyalty to jim or i owe loyalty to my mother especially when we're talking about the military my eye starts to twitch when those conversations come up Uh, because i think especially in terms of the military but also in terms of our civilian communal citizenry life That's something that our national birth was a revolt against. And so I think that kind of notion of loyalty, you know, can be really dangerous because it it historically has been associated with authoritarian and totalitarian regimes. It's about the person as the embodiment of the state. and And I think in our system, it's sort of the reverse. It's this whoever happens to occupy the office, understanding that different people will. Occupy the office over time.
2: We talked to our second guest today about exactly this idea that multiple people will occupy the office of the president, sometimes people with very different values or political goals. And these changes can create real challenges for those serving in uniform, even and perhaps especially the senior most military officer in the country.
1: I knew I'd be there to 2009. I knew that would transition to a new administration, whether it continued to be Republican or it would be Democrat.
0: That was retired Admiral Michael Mullen, the 17th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. What I really appreciated after talking to Admiral Mullen was how much politics and ideologies complicate the military's obedience at those high levels. He used the U.S. withdrawal from Iraq as an example.
1: President Bush set the date I was there, set it with him, of the end of 11, so that a new president would have the option. That was very clear. And then President Obama, who campaigned on getting out of Iraq, came in, in my view, to fulfill that promise, if he could do that. And he did, that campaign promise. That wasn't for me to debate at that point. They were decisions that each president made with respect to the Iraq
2: war. We also asked Admiral Mullen about building trust with the new president. The first big exercise that would either build or undermine trust between President Obama and the Pentagon during Mullen's tenure concerned Afghanistan.
1: So he gets there in January, we need to get an upper down from the president on what was 17,000 troops. We needed to get over there before the snow melted to be in a position for the fighting season in the middle of a hot war. So Obama approved that, but then said, I'm gonna, you know, I wanna do this review. And then we did this extensive review starting in the fall about where to go. Afghanistan had been badly underserved for years at that point in terms of troop strength vis-a-vis the mission and the state of what was going on there. And at at the same time, I'm trying to build trust with a new president. I mean, my job is to advise the Secretary of Defense and the President, National Security Council uh, in that time frame. And we worked, I worked like crazy to develop that. That was very tough, particularly in the middle of two wars. And in the middle of that, uh, as we're working our way through all these issues, Woodward breaks a story of McChrystal's assessment, which called for a lot of troops. And that was read, Right, I thought it was wrong, the read was wrong, but it was read rightly or wrongly as us boxing the president in, which you don't want to do. That was certainly not the intent, but it did box him in because now it was all public. A lot of it was public, not what his decision was. But I had basically, in the effort to build trust, I had lost trust. So it was one of these things, as hard as I worked to get to support this new president, I knew that I'd lost that trust. And I told the four stars at the time, the chiefs, I said, we've now lost this trust. And this is a scar that the current president, President Obama, will wear on his back for the rest of the time he's president. And he did. Do that.
0: I remember I had just joined the Pakistan desk in OSD when McChrystal's assessment leaked, and you could just feel the whole Pentagon wincing.
2: Yeah, everyone really has a sense of how deep the wound can be when trust is broken. Mullen said he knew it was something the Obama team would really never quite get over. Michelle Flournoy, who was the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy at the time, said just as much to Thomas and Nick when she was on the show last year.
4: And that breach of trust, I think, kind of colored. Uh, the civil-military relations for the rest of that term.
2: Of course, this incident isn't all about the president's trust in the military. What about the military's trust in the president? Does the military's view of civilians matter to civilian control of the military?
0: In her book about obedience, Dr. Corinne talks about the reciprocal nature of relationships based on trust.
2: She writes, Soldiers will observe a leader they are loyal to. I would follow him into hell. But it's helpful to think about exactly what that means. For many, it conveys that they trust this leader to preserve their life, to lead them well, even in very difficult circumstances. Why would they trust them so intensely? It is because their past experiences with the competence, character, performance, and leadership of this individual lead them to think risking themselves with the person is a reasonable gamble.
0: I think anyone who's ever been through a high stakes experience inside an organization knows either the feeling of really trusting your leader or the deep anxiety of not trusting them. And you know, what also strikes me about the McChrystal report leaking is that it was too early for the president and the military to have built up that trust with each other over time. And that lack of trust was probably why someone leaked the report. Maybe someone on the uniform side didn't trust the administration to make what they thought was the right decision. Or maybe the distrust was actually aimed at the military.
4: We don't know. But it reminded me of a story Mara Carlin told us. I was working as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Strategy and Force Development, and we were trying really hard to facilitate an important discussion inside the department on how to really assess the strategy. And, um, we brought together this just fantastic group of folks at the two star and three star level. You know, th- those in uniform, obviously, and also their civilian equivalents. And we, we hosted this state of the strategy discussion. And I appreciated that this discussion allowed folks to be really honest with one another about what they saw from kind of their own stovepipes and looking across and to, and to come up with, frankly, some pretty discomfitting conclusions, conclusions that have really shaped my thinking over the last uh, three or four years. And I, I think a lot of that, it, it worked because you had folks who knew one another well, who trusted one another well.
2: And you know what? This isn't all. Add to this trust building challenge between the White House and the Pentagon that civilian control of the military is actually shared between the President and Congress. Broader issues of control, things like strategy and resources, the use of force, Congress has a significant constitutional role in those things. So the military really answers to two masters. And really, when you think about it, it actually answers to 536 masters. We asked Admiral Mullen about this added part of the civil dynamic.
1: I was, and I may be the only one you've ever spoken to, but but there are not many that I, I was actually an individual that looked forward to hearings.
0: <laughs> yes, you may be quite rare in that, sir. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, no, I really did. And I did for the reason. One, it's part of the process. Two, it's their show. I, I, I get that. But at the same time, it's a terrific opportunity for me to speak to the public, for me to speak to decision makers about what's important and what isn't important. I was testifying on the Hill for probably 10 years before I became chairman, I mean subcommittees, et cetera, I had engaged senior staffers and members for years on both sides of the aisle. And they understood that we couldn't be partisan. They really did understand that. And probably nine out of 10 of them were in their questioning understanding of that even though they push that boundary of could they make me speak out against the administration and I saw it from both sides for for a long time certainly the six years I was either a chief or a chairman and you have to you're walking a fine line there but you have to give an honest answer at least from my perspective you have to give an honest answer
0: honesty trust shared values No wonder they call it a civil-military relationship.
2: But we can't lose sight of the control part of it. Elliot Cohen has this phrase to describe American civil-military relations. He calls it the unequal dialogue. Civilians take precedence over the military, but just as Pauline points out, military obedience is still a negotiation.
0: I gotta say, this makes me uncomfortable sometimes because I think there is a temptation, especially recently, for the military to lean too far into these negotiations I've written that I don't think the military gets some kind of peer review over civilian direction.
2: I do think sometimes we take for granted that the military won't try to use its power, whether that's actual force, or more likely its prestige and political power, to try to flip the relationship and pressure civilians to do what the military wants on a certain issue. Pauline's not the first philosopher to think about this problem either. Almost 2,400 years ago, Plato first posed the question, who shall guard the guardians themselves? to succinctly describe the problem of civilian control.
0: Jim, just to lay down a marker on us discussing the ancient roots of modern political theory, if you try to engage me in a conversation about the Peloponnesian Wars, I'm stopping the recording.
2: Okay, okay. But in more recent history, Samuel Huntington essentially says you need a professional military. If you give the military the freedom to develop its own expertise about how to fight, and you give it enough autonomy to police itself— The military will agree to be apolitical and subordinate itself to civilian control.
0: Ah, so you can have your cake and eat it too. A professional military is effective and it is under civilian control.
2: Exactly, at least according to Huntington.
0: But Risa Brooks told Thomas and Nick at the end of last season that Huntington's emphasis on the military's autonomy from civilians can actually make the military more political and less
2: effective. Right. And that is similar to the critique Aristotle made of Plato's Guardians. Aristotle thought that Plato misunderstood human nature. When you create people with the necessary spirit to be effective and you give them autonomy, it makes them want to rule. So Aristotle thought you solve the problem in part by education about what constitutes the good life, and in part by giving the people who serve in the military a promise that they get to rule in the future.
0: So part of Aristotle's solution was that only military veterans should be in the ruling class? That's not especially civilian-civilian control.
2: Not really. And it's also not clear that the Spartan regime that most resembled Aristotle's ideal was actually that effective militarily, despite a lot of the warrior culture worship we see today.
0: I guess that's why a lot of modern scholars have focused on how to strengthen the civilian side of the equation. Being an effective civilian in the civil-military relationship is hard to do, and we don't focus enough on how to do it well.
2: You're absolutely right. And it's even harder because civilians in the White House and in Congress or the Democratic and Republican parties don't always agree on what our goals should be. Some of Deborah Avant's work and some of my own focus on the ways that civilians compete for control over the military and why that sometimes gives the military an advantage in negotiations.
0: I guess the upshot is that maybe the problem of civilian control isn't something you solve once and for all. And you need strong, competent civilians with the legal, administrative, and financial tools to control the military, and a professional military focused on military effectiveness.
2: And both civilians and the military need to agree that the military serves the nation, not just some of the civilians. And both sides need to adhere to the norms that make sure it stays that way.
0: That's all we have time for today. If you liked what you heard... Go ahead and tweet your thoughts about the Peloponnesian Wars at Jim, but please leave me out of it.
2: Please do send us feedback, though, and tell us what else you'd like us to talk about on the show. Our email is tyfyspodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to tell us your name and where you're from. We want to credit your idea on a future show.
0: Pauline Shanks-Corinne's latest book on obedience is available everywhere, including on ebook, which is how I read it. And you really should follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at Corinne Shanks. That's at K-A-U-R-I-N-S-H-A-N-K-S.
2: If you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it with your friends on social media or give us a good review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Thank You for Your Service we